On this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Damella, managing partner at Charles Gate. And if you haven't heard of Charles Gate before, Charles Gate is an integrated real estate services firm that empowers thousands of clients throughout the Massachusetts and New England region. Charles Gate's mission is really to help people live better and invest better by delivering comprehensive arrays of forward-thinking real estate solutions. There's a lot to dig into there. We'll get into that on the podcast. But one of my biggest takeaways about Mike is that he has a great mind for brand, a great mind for marketing. And I had the the honor and the pleasure to sit down with him here and dive into quite a few of those topics and get his take on many of the most important ones across the industry. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Mike from Charles Gate. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm fired up to be here, Chris. Looking forward to the conversation. (laughs) All right. Well, I, I think you know a little bit about the format, but I always like to hear um, some background first, you know, kind of where you came from, what that looked like. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about your early years. And I think it's been in and around Boston for, for most of your life. But um, give the listeners a sense of, of what that looked like and, and where you grew up. Yes, I grew up in a city called Medford, which is just it's in the Boston area, about five miles north of Boston. Um, pretty, you know, urban, not downtown Boston per se, but it's a fairly urban kind of city, city environment. Uh, I grew up in a, you know, a pretty typical, I guess, Bedford family, triple decker type of living, which is common around here in, in the Boston area, if you've, if you've heard the phrase. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up, um, we had a, you know, nice neighborhood at a, at a bunch of friends growing up and, and, you know, we used to play in the street, you know, street hockey and, the, and the actually street hockey actually in a street. So that, that's fun. Got to move the nets when the cars come by. Um, so that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Good, you know, family. My parents were great, super supportive, hardworking type parents, uh, you know, blue collar. I'd, I'd call it blue collar environment. And, and you know, just just a kind of a, a, a great childhood, you know, whether you're playing you know, street ball, stick hockey, all that kind of, all that kind of good stuff in the yeah. streets as we were, as we were kids, probably getting into a little bit too much trouble, but it's the type of thing where my parents used to tell us, you know, once the street lights come on, you have to come home. So that, that type of environment. Yeah, that's cool. And when I grew up, um, it was, or where I grew up was, was, it was a little bit more of a basketball town where I grew up. So I was doing mm. kind of like the street basketball. We'd have literally that street light above the basketball hoop. And yeah. then <laughs> to your point, when it gets dark, okay, you got to come in now. Um, what about any siblings, any like brothers or sisters that you were like playing hockey with or like, what was the kind of the family makeup yeah. that you had? Yeah. So I was, I was the oldest of three. I have a younger, um, sister and brother who was in the middle <laughs> of us. He, he passed away about 20 years ago, but the three of us growing up and, um, yeah, we were pretty close in age. We had different friend groups, but we were pretty, we were all within, you know, four, four years. My, my brother and I were like 18 or 19 months apart and my sister was about two years, uh, younger than him. So we were all pretty close, although we did have different friend groups, uh, and, and doing different things. My brother and I played a little bit of hockey growing up together. Sometimes we're on the same team, sometimes different teams. Um, and, uh, you know, my sister was sort of, you know, part, part of the pack in a sense, we probably picked on her a little bit too much, but, uh, we've got a good relationship. She actually works here at my company now. So that's, that's really cool. Oh, really cool. Yeah. Well, I don't want to like spoil it too much, but, um, a big part of your life did become hockey actually. And so not to fast forward too much, but <laughs> you ended up, you ended up going to, uh, school for hockey. You, you played all, you know, all through your youth, you went to uh, college and you did play some hockey there. We can get there in a second, but, um, I'm curious, like as you were growing up, did you have any particular like educational path in mind? And, and I think it's a little bit of a softball question because I would say most of us when we're, you know, in sixth grade, 10th grade, 12th grade, like we don't know what we're, what we're going to do with our lives. But, um, what were you kind of eyeing at that point in your life as you looked toward college? Um, or was it just primarily like, Hey, I love hockey. I'm going to go to school for hockey and, and see where it leads me. Yeah, I was a, just a total hockey degenerate. No, <laughs> no. I, I was actually a pretty good student all growing up. So I was lucky enough that I, I you know, I sort of, I don't know if I would say I enjoyed school, but I, I enjoyed learning and I still do enjoy learning very much. It's an important part, uh, you know, important uh, part of my life is just always constantly learning. And I enjoyed that as a student as well. So I did well at school. I was a pretty quick study. Um, I don't know if I had like something that was like, oh, this is exciting. Like I want to be, you know, an architect when I grow up or something like that. Clearly that you have that artistic inspiration or something. But uh, generally I was, um, you know, I'd say more of a, a kind of a numbers guy than a writing guy in a sense. Um, you know, I had a, I took an economics class in high school that was really cool and exciting. And that's from that point on, and that's where I went on to get an economics degree in college as well. I was sort of 
inspired by that idea and that framework of thinking like, you know, the idea of allocating scarce resources and how to, how to markets work, how to economies work. Uh, and so that's where, you know, I'd say it's sort of my first inspiration and in, in, in thinking, okay, hey, this is cool. I like this. I like this field. I like this idea of this field anyway. Maybe that can take me into finance. I, I didn't think real estate at the time, truthfully, but, you know, I think there's a lot of, it's a good framework for thinking about the world. So it's a lot of opportunity to go in a different direction there. And, I, and that, that kind of appealed to me. So that's, um, that was in high school. Before that, no, it was just kind of like, you know, taking your classes, doing a good job. And, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, also as we talk about playing hockey and playing sports and, you know, having, having good friendships along the way. So you, you ended up at Boston University. And mm-hmm. um, if anyone who's unfamiliar with Boston University, look it up, a uh, really well-known school here, here on the East Coast uh, or on the East Coast. And uh, it sounds like your path was sort of uh, parallel. It was, you know, kind of economics and hockey. What ended up happening with your, with your hockey career? Because I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty big thing to become a, a D one athlete, um, at, at any sport, but certainly, uh, hockey in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was lucky enough, as you said, to, to play D one sports and, and, and hockey specifically. And, um, and so, you know, I had, a, I had a blast doing it. I had, um, you know, great teammates, great fun, really it was excited. It was, you know, goal of mine to play in, in college. Uh, I was not a superstar by any means, but I, you know, I was a good, I'd say hardworking grinder type player on the team, which is, which is fantastic. Uh, but a great, a great team experience. What happened though, I, I ended up, um, hurting my back and had to stop playing, uh, at that sort of halfway through my college career. And uh, at that point, it was it was a kind of an odd, uh, I guess, maybe turning point for me. I had maybe thought about opportunity to play professionally in Europe. I wasn't good enough to play in the NHL or anything like that, but maybe professionally in Europe for a little while. And that would have been the next step to kind of, you know, finish off my career doing something like minor minor league or playing in Europe. But I hurt my back, had to stop playing. And, and the interesting thing about, you know, being a division one athlete, it's essentially a full-time job, right? You've got practice every day, you've got video meetings, you've got team meetings, you've got nutrition, you've got workouts, and you've got all of these things going on that really, you know, all go into like, you know, actually performing in the game at game time. But, but taking that away from me when I got hurt, I was like, basically pulling my hair out, going from having mm. a full-time job and being a student to just now just sort of being a student. And, um, and, and so that's actually ended up how I, how I fell into real estate. I, I, my, my uh, friend of mine, now my actually business partner, but, but I was telling him I need to get a job. I just can't sit around playing video games all day here at school. I'm <laughs> bored. I'm pulling my hair out. I don't know what to do. She's like, Oh, well you should, you know, try out real estate. It's a great job. You can work around your, um, schedule at school and, you know, it's a great job. I've been very successful at it. He was doing it for like six months or maybe a year at the time. And, uh, and that's, that's how I actually fell into, into real estate. Really cool. Yeah. I remember when we, uh, we chatted a few times before this, um, obviously just to get a little bit more of a background on things. And one of the quotes that I wrote down is that you felt like you went from D one hockey to nothing. And it seemed like (laughs) such a great, you know, coincidence, call it coincidence, whatever you want to call it. Um, when your now partner came to you and said, Hey, why don't you try out this thing? And it ultimately that became really the beginnings of Charles gate in the early, in the early days. And we're talking early, early two thousands. Um, and I'll use that as a transition point into talking a little bit more about, about Charles gate. Cause there's a lot to dig into here. Um, you know, I think it needs to be said aloud that what Charles gate was in the early two thousands feels like a completely different company to what Charles gate is today. And, and to be frank, I had no idea that Charles gate, the history went back that far. So it was really cool to kind of hear that story from you and and learn more about that. Um, Talk to us about those early years. Um, Not necessarily exactly how they relate to today, but just how it's evolved so drastically, you know, 20 ish years later. (laughs) Scary to think it's been that long actually. (laughs) But yeah, no, we were, we, we started the business as essentially just a brokerage company like so doing doing sales and and leasing um in 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 around downtown boston here and so that was the original start of the business we're gonna you know we were working at another brokerage at the time and at right after pretty much right after college we uh decided hey let's jump in and start our own business because i don't know we were too stupid to know any better or who who knows but i've always had that entrepreneurial mindset i guess um, from my perspective but so we started in just as a brokerage from really small we had you know a a handful of people on the team working with us 
and, uh, and, and, you know, our thought was to scale that and grow that up as a, as a brokerage, we had uh, evolved several models, you know, through that, through that time, but really it was just a brokerage time. Now what we've evolved to since then is a wildly different thing than just a brokerage. And I'm sure we'll dive into that in, in, in some more detail, but, uh, at, at the early years, we were just, we were just sort of selling, working with sellers and buyers and leasing apartments. Uh, and because we were in an urban environment like this too, we were doing a lot of a lot of leasing and leasing of properties and leasing of multifamily. So that's sort of, you know, led us to getting into property management and that other parts of marketing, multifamily, new development marketing later on. Um, but but really, it was just primarily um, servicing um, uh, basically a brokerage business with, yeah. with a collection of agents as at the time. <clears throat> and it can't be can't be understated enough that 2008 did did arrive for you all yeah, as well yeah. at, at Charles Gate. And I remember you saying to me that you felt like there was a time where there was just uh, bloodshed across like all aspects <laughs> of the industry. And, and then here you are with this relatively new company kind of trying to figure it out, still cutting your teeth to some extent. What uh, what did that leave you all thinking about or considering next? Because obviously that was a, a huge moment in the, the real estate history. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, it was, it was a lot of um, a lot of challenging times as you know. So going, it was funny going into 07 and early parts of it. We had just leased. Uh, we were growing at the time. We were you know adding to the team, and it was exciting. Like 2007 was our best year, and coming to 2008, first half of 2008 was great. We just leased a brand new office space, much bigger, much more overhead. All the you know hired some new employees. Perfect. All timing. the stuff to yeah, ex- perfect time. Exactly, perfect timing, and we so we were you know ready to continue to scale up and then next thing you know the the world now the, to be clear though the market the real estate market was already sort of frothy at the time and and you know you knew there wasn't going to be just gangbusters forever but we didn't expect it to see such a massive you know absolute you know cluster f for lack of a better word of what happened in the economy and so so after that, obviously the brokerage business dropped off substantially. We did make some pivots. We went actually pretty heavily into servicing foreclosures and REO, which also is another thing that led us into more of the um, property management business because that is that has a management element to it, to handling bank-owned properties. Because it was you know for the areas where there were a lot of foreclosures, we were able to build some banking relationships and and service a lot of those properties for both the property management and um, and sale end of it. Um, so there was a lot of learning that was going on, a lot of adjusting and adapting. On on the fly, we we did the best we could um, to not have to lay people off and to try to keep our team together, which we did successfully. Uh, but we had to grind and scrap and claw for for a lot, really, for for the first year for sure, and then even even the couple of following years after that, when we were digging out of the recession. Yeah. But I think the key the key lessons for us there were, you know, we need to diversify our our income base, right? Um, so that's when we thought, okay, let's really. We had been thinking about property management for a while. And then that's when we really took that opportunity, though, to say, hey, this this is let's think about how we can do this in a in a more robust fashion and really build a property management business, uh, as well as some of the other things that came later on. So we weren't just a just a brokerage business. We were building other other, you know, service lines, other businesses that could um, that could, you know, that relate to our core business at at the time brokerage, but also could could um, absorb any shocks and, and have various sort of, you know, economics uh, engines behind them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. I think one of the ways that you described it was full stack, um, you know, we think about like full stack development on the on the creative and kind of programming side, but really like full stack for real estate. Um, and a phrase that I've been thinking about recently and using recently is this idea of B to Y in that we often hear about these really pretty stories, these really colorful stories about, hey, you know, this is where we were and this is where we got to very much like A to Z type stuff. And I'm always curious to understand more about the middle stuff, like the the maybe not as sexy stuff, the, the, the grind, as you mentioned, the B to Y of Charles Gate. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to dive in a little bit more to that <laughs> when it comes to getting through 08 and kind of moving into like this new phase of Charles Gate, which you have obviously grown into quite a bit to this day. What, again, if you're willing, what does that, what did that look like and kind of what did it take to get there? 
Yeah, I mean, what, what are you? You're telling me that I didn't have a full thought out plan that was perfect from 2008 <laughs> to 2020. No, I mean, look, I think fundamentally what it comes down to us for us is is to rely on your your fundamental beliefs as as a business as a business owner and and know that that we're, what you're what we're trying to do. So for us, what always is most critically important is we want to take care of our people. We want to be an employee first organization, and that was that was the basis of a lot of our decisions at the time in in, in 2008 and then going forward. And then I think the other critical piece is having not necessarily an exact perfect strategy or framework for where you're going to go from today. You know, as you as you say, A to Z. But have a have a framework that you can use to base decisions that you have to make in real time, adjust to market conditions. And so you can go from B to C, you know, maybe to E and then maybe back to D and then maybe to maybe to, you know, whatever, hopefully eventually mm-hmm. somewhere around Z. But I think for us in 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 detail, it was it was just really um you know, when when the volume of sales dropped off our revenue, uh, you know, sort of went off a cliff pretty quickly there, right? And at the end of 08. And we had to figure out how to, you know, because at the time we were also generating, you know, doing like a lot of lead generation that that kind of talks about how we were thinking about marketing at the time, but like a lot of lead generation marketing for our agents and building, you know, helping them build their revenue through through a lead gen or a company marketing program. So that stuff obviously was in, was in serious decline at the time. And just the general demand in the market had dried up considerably so so we just were like what can we possibly do to get business no forethought no um no like big strategy it was like okay this is like a lot of banks are taking over properties let's try to reach out to the banks and figure out hey how can we work with you guys we know how to sell properties you guys have properties to sell let's do that and then they're like well also you have to take care of this property and we're like well i have no freaking hmm. idea how to do that so we had to sort of figure out we'll hire some maintenance guys on the fly you know hire um some other other people that were, would work with us to to manage and maintain properties that were oftentimes in disrepair so you know you're going you're going into properties that are that are oftentimes a mess when they when they get to that state where they're ba- bank owned and have left into have been left in disrepair and you know oftentimes um, you know, difficult to, to, to deal with areas, whether it's high crime area or otherwise. And so, you know, all these things we're just learning on the fly. And I think that's the big thing for us is have that growth mindset, knowing that we can figure out what we have to do next, but all out of all that learning, that's for really a kind of a two or three year period. We were, we were heavy in the foreclosure maintenance mm-hmm. and management business and, uh, and selling business. And that was just tons of learning. We're like, well, if we could do this for these really super difficult properties, there's no reason why we can't actually really dive into the management business and do that in a more robust way and build a real solid management platform from there. So it was not, not that we hadn't thought of entering management business because we get a lot of requests, but we had put it off and put it off and put it off because we didn't want to do it till we did it right. Uh, uh, but then just, just the, just by the nature of what happened after 08, we were sort of forced to rapidly go into it. And that's one of the things that was, you know, serendipitous in a way, even though it was a very difficult time for us that led to us building this, you know, later building this management platform. So that's just, that's one example, for instance, that was without a lot of foresight, so to speak, but just adjusting and adapting on the fly to figure things out. And it seems like throughout the years too, you were able to get into a little bit of like, um, you know, quick learning around the development side of the industry. Obviously you did eventually acquire a small property management company as well. So you kind of brought forward some of the brokerage routes that you had. There was more kind of newer development and marketing associated to that acquisition. Um, the property management team, of course, um, and, and just to sort of set the stage for the, the kind of marketing conversation I want to get into, um, how many, how many units do you all kind of manage and oversee now? And like, what are the sizes of the deals that you're working on? Yes, yeah, so we manage about 4,000 units. Now we've got about another plus or minus 1500 in new that are in development phases right now that we'll be taking on to lease up and to manage. We are our, our kind of bread and butter. I would say is that mid market, um, you know, 20 to like 120 unit size right now. Um, but we, we handle, you know, we handle everything from, you know, five units to 250 unit projects. Um, but, but the middle market is really where we have been, we, we can really, um, differentiate the value we're offering into the market and doing a a really, really unique job. I think for a lot of properties with the way we think about staffing and operations and and leasing and marketing, but, um, but that's, that's sort of our bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and you touched on this super briefly earlier, but, but we're going to dive into it now. Cause like, I can't wait to talk about this with you, but 
when it comes to to marketing and like this idea of lead gen tactics for multifamily, you and I often I find myself on the same page with you. I mean, I I've been a follower of yours online, some of the content that you've been putting out for quite a while. And I feel like we speak the same language. Um, what you put up, I'm always often shaking my head like, yes, he gets it. Where did that initial nuance come from? Like, where did those early opinions come from? Because I know you've been in the industry for 20 years. Um, how did that start? Where did those begin from? Yeah. So, and, and by the way, I would, I would echo what you just said and same, same for you. you. You're putting out some incredible content that I love to le- I learn. I learned from you. So thank you for, for that. So thank you. Um, um, but yeah, so I, it was just honestly learning from doing right. I think my initial um, approach to marketing on the lead gen side, we, we were an early adopter of things like Google ads very early on and, and other things that you could really take an analytic approach to marketing into, into creating, you know, lead gen or demand gen, um, or, or early on, really just testing and iterating. That was where my, actually kind of my numbers sort of mindset came in. So you could really d- dive in and like, look at some real sort of, this is more of a science than an, than the art of marketing, so to speak. Yeah. And that's really what I, what my foray into, into, you know, really, doing marketing. We started early. We started generating, you know, leads, doing a lot of AdWords around, you know, for properties and for for generating leads for buyers and sellers at the time. And that's really what it came from. It just evolved from there, really trying to stay forward, trying to keep learning, um, you know, that what's coming next, what's happening now, how how is this marketing evolving? And it's really just a, a continual growth experience. But ultimately we really started to use some things um, very early on. Um, like AdWords, like we were one of HubSpot's earliest customers, for instance, mm. as well, in terms of their uh, marketing platform. Um, so those types of things, we always try to be sort of early adopters and really looking what's coming next. We were one of the, we might've been the first, if not the first to do like full Matterport 3D tours in Boston area. So a, okay. a lot of those things that we were really trying to stay on the on the forefront of and always testing and iterating and looking at, you know, what's next. Not, not to, that we have to incorporate every single thing, but it's important to kind of, I use it's a of a hockey term, but you said, keep your head on a swivel and really like looking around the marketplace, what's coming next, what can we use? You know, you don't want to be too early on a lot of things either because you don't want to waste money or, or test, but it's, it's important to run a little experiments and test things where you can to, to find yeah. out how to use marketing most effectively. Yeah, you know, I was in a conversation recently talking about newspaper ads, Craigslist posts, uh, MySpace pages. I mean, it's really <laughs> kind of funny, you know, that, that was serious stuff, you know, years ago, but now yeah. it's kind of funny looking back and I'm sure we'll do the same thing in another 10 or 15 years about what we're talking about today. But, uh, for you kind of in thinking about those biggest shifts from then to now over the last many years, what stands out to you as being like the, the big changes that have really impacted or altered the approach from a marketing perspective for these properties? You know, I, I think, I think, I think this, it's hard to say in my mind what the biggest is. Obviously, there was a transition from you know offline and print to digital that happened sort of in the in the early two thousand mid two thousand you know really even into two thousand eight ten twelve really. So that was a massive transition. I think sort of there's still a lot. There's still frankly amazingly still some legacy thinking around that. Um, so the the biggest thing was the transition to digital. Obviously, then you had not just from digital things like AdWords and targeted keyword advertising, but social, right? Now social came online, and now I think this is a big transition uh, moving forward to video as well. Now, but also I think the the bigger part of that though, the more holistic approach to that is like like marketing is just mattering more than it ever has before, right? Like having mm. an effective brand, like creating marketing that is geared to a core audience that is, you know, for a certain company or product or building, whatever it might be, it's really, it's, it's really critical to develop the right kind of marketing program, the right kind of brand to attract people. It's not just putting up a building and, and cause people are going to show up cause it's a great location anymore. That stuff doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fly anymore. Really, you have to come up with this more holistic approach. That's, you know, incorporating brand, incorporating, you know, demand gen marketing, incorporating, even things like the leasing process so that and the way the building's designed and all these things being integrated and, and it can really extend and create a powerful market impact as opposed to, um, you know, I, I feel like that that wasn't as well thought out before. Um, mm. So, you know, that's sort of a holistic look at that other than the, the, the obviously the big transitions from analog offline to digital to social to, you know, not, not a video and maybe to AI going forward here. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things too that you said to me that I agreed with, and, I, and I, another one of those head nodders is that uh, with their with their becoming 
a, an increased reliance on brand and messaging, like brand being a very important, and I always call it, uh, it's a business asset. When done well, at the end of the day, it actually becomes a business asset. And I know that you agree on that as well. Um, but you said, you know, in some ways, in kind of a funny way, it's like returning back to how it was in the old in the olden days. And I'm, you know, throwing up air quotes here. But so you call me, calling me, calling me old. What's happening? No, I'm, here? I'm calling me old too. Uh, <laughs> hey, look, I had I was in the MySpace era too. But um, <clears throat> the 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 funny thing is that you know. All of these things that we talk about today, which is to say, you know, brand is important. You need to be speaking to a specific audience. There needs to be kind of like a, a rhyme and a reason to why people are connected to your to your space and to your property. It, you're right. That is just that's just returning to what marketing and brand really means at its core. And and I think what's funny about this transition from 2002 to 2022 is that. Um, even though it went from non-digital to digital, we're now still having sort of a similar conversation, even though there's quite a few other pieces of the technology stack involved. Yeah, without a doubt, what, you know, because what happened in the middle uh, ground, and I know we, we've spoken a little bit about this, is where you could target everything so perfectly, so precisely, and you had all this demographic data, you had all, which, you know, was now as we're looking back even today, it's like, oh, geez, that, you know, that this privacy laws that are coming into place for the right reasons, for good reasons, because you could target things and people so specifically or groups of people so specifically that, you know, we don't probably want those things as a society, but your messaging didn't have to be as good because you could, the targeting was so much more effective. You didn't, mm -hmm. you didn't have to rely on the brand and the messaging to attract people to it. You could just go right to them very easily. Now you could still do the targeting, which is an important part of what we do on the demand gen side to some degree, but you very much need the, the 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 messaging and the branding and the imagery to to help help stand out and attract the the audience that you're trying to attract. So those are the, the really the key things and some of the so transformations that have happened in just the past mm -hmm. three or four years or so. I would love to jump into a few. I'll call them polarizing topics because it's, <laughs> it sounds sounds cooler. Uh, but some topics that relate to marketing in multifamily, maybe just in real estate in, 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 at a at a high level, but that seem to be really sort of, uh, you know, either A or B, like people have a very distinct impression of uh, what they think is the right way or the wrong way. And the first one that I wanna bring up is this idea of having an ILS on a corporate website versus having a bunch of individual websites and not even bringing any of that into a corporate website. Uh, just from a, in your experience and from a marketing perspective, do you find either direction as being inherently better than the other or kind of better or worse than, than the other and, and, and why? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think, I think in general, having your available listings be available to find in more places is generally a better option. Right. And that's so whether on the corporate site, on individual property sites, um, or distributed on sort of the third party platforms like, uh, apartments.com or Zillow generally, but now obviously you have to always operate within the constraints of a budget. So especially when you're talking about the third party, you know, there's a fee involved in different things that we have to think about and what's the most effective use of budget spend. But generally, I think if you've got a corporate site, there's no reason to not have your, not to have your listings on the corporate site, even if you're out there appearing like now you've got competitive buildings on one site, perhaps trying to attract people either way now. But I would argue that's where there's a lot of other factors besides where do they find your listings? Uh, if it's on one sure. site or another, because they're going to find it on Zillow or apartments.com or on these other ones anyway. And so you might as well have them there and people are going to dr be drawn to the, the apartment building they need, whether it's location, whether it's amenities, whether it's the brand that appeals to them, unit mix, there's all these other factors that, um, that that are much more important than saying okay i see one building compared to another building on the same website like that is to me that's silly people that's already out there the cat's out of the bag so i don't think there's a concern mm -hmm. with putting properties next to each other on one website yeah that that's one of the what's one of the better points that i feel like is on that side of the of the opinion in that and i think that you phrased it something along the lines of you know people aren't looking for a a specific property like they're looking for location they're looking for amenities to your point you know they're looking for kind of like they're looking to check a few of the boxes they're not going to go into google and say um you know at least at first i want this one property you know i think the only exception there to be fair is if they did walk by it 
and they know, okay, this is the neighborhood. This is what I want. This is the area. Let me go and literally Google that name. But otherwise, you know, being able to create a brand and a presence uh, for multiple buildings and sort of showcasing the options to someone, I think does make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, in that, in that I, way, and I agree. I, I, yeah. And so, and, and so I would add though, like to think about it in, in the case of what we're doing for marketing and branding for a specific property, you're still trying to attract people to that property, but to, to, to put, to, to think people have their head stuck in the sand and they hear about one property, even if they Google it, they're not going to see other competitors. It's just that that doesn't make any sense. Now exactly. our job marketing a property or, you know, building a brand, building a marketing strategy, doing all the stuff you need to do to attract demand to that property. You know, we want to attract people as directly as possible, but people's path to choosing any product, whether that's a place to live or not, is not a linear path. It's not, we're going to, I'm going to Google one, building with one name and that's the one I'm going to choose. No, there's so many things that come into it and it's research, there's reviews, there's talking to, you know, friends and family that's looking on social media. There's, you, you know, all kinds of things that they go through for the path to that apartment. Uh, you know, even just the, the, the sales process or the leasing process on site is so critically important to removing friction and making it easier for people to make a decision for that particular property that mm -hmm. all of these things come into play. And so, you know, I, I find I always would lean to say, make it make it easy. Give people all the information they need to make a decision that removes friction from the process. Don't try to, you know, don't yeah. try to hide things from them or pretend they're not going to find other properties, you know, because it's on the same website or something. That just to me is right. kind of silly. And two, I think one of the things I'm, I'm recalling, one of the things that we talked about or that we've talked about in the past, too, is um, and, and I, I don't think that this is a. I do not believe that this is an opinion that is held by the majority in the industry. And that is, um, and to paraphrase what you said, uh, please, please, uh, address if I've, I've grossly mis misguided the, the listeners, but, um, you actually have felt like, you know, we should not necessarily do this finish, this style, this look and feel because it actually would appeal to more people. We should do the opposite. We should create a, a look and feel a vibe select finishes to be actually more specific and have a stronger mess message and vibe and sort of end product to a what what ultimately becomes a unique core audience for this one specific property can you speak to that a little bit and, and did yeah. i did i paraphrase that decently well <laughs> no you you i think i think i think that was a very good job thank you appreciate it yeah no i think I talk to people about this all the time because it's a pet peeve of mine. Everyone's like, is this, you know, is this decision going to appeal to the most people? Is it going to turn anyone off? And it's like, is it going to be, is everyone going to like the white cabinet versus the brown cabinet? Or are more people going to like this color floor? I'm like, who cares if more people like it? You just want the right people to really, really like it. And yeah. in fact, if you actually make fewer people really, really like it, that's going to lead to a better result. Right. And so as opposed to, you know, most people just kind of care about it. There's no differentiator. There's no impact. There's no like emotional appeal when when someone sees that cool rendering or photo online or virtual tour. Then they walk in they're like, whoa, this is this is talking to me, right? And it's also a lot easier. I, I would you know, maybe I'll ask you this, but like to build a brand and think about building a brand around that too, because you can really tie all those things together, tie the message exactly. together. Everything sings, right? And that really speaks to your target audience. Now the key part of that and what we say is for, from my perspective, it's a little bit dangerous to try to do that. Like in, in a vacuum, you know, if you're not close to the customer and this is what we talk to our, our clients are about all the time. It's like, we want to help you do, you know, design a property the right way for the right target audience in a given area. And we're close to the customer. We're dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of customers, you know, I call them customers for the general sense, but residents, right. We're dealing with thousands and thousands of residents whether they're going through the leasing process in any number of property. And so we know and we have a sense of what these people, you know, want to see in any given area, the types of people that might be out there in the market and, the, and that might be appealed to, you know, a certain area and to build something for them. I mean, if you have 100 units or 200 units in a building, you don't have to make an apartment that everybody kind of likes. You want to make an apartment right. building that 200 people really fucking love. Right. And that's the key. Exactly. Thing. Sorry, if yeah. I can't swear on this podcast, by the no, way. No, you can. Right no, it's 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 no. You're all good. Um, I think this. I think that this ties in great though to this next topic, which is corporate level property branding. And I think 
that it's another one that is hot or cold, depending on who you talk to. I love the discussion though, because I think that there are good points on either side. Mm -hmm. Um, when we have scratched the surface on this one, you've, you've brought some really great points to the table. I love to hear what you think about the topic because granted there is a lot of nuance to it, but, um, kind of dovetailing into where you just landed. What do you think about, uh, corporate level property branding? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said, there's, there's, there's pros and cons, I think either way. And I think there's a way to do it um, that can be effective. I understand like coming from a, you know, a major brand perspective, big REITs and stuff. And it's like, okay, we want to present our, this is like our style apartment. We want, we want, we want, you know, there's a lot of reasons to brand the, the, the portfolio wide thing, because for whatever it's, maybe it's a public REIT and they want that out there. Like we'll call it an Avalon Bay communities type of thing. And they want to, they want everything to be an Avalon because, you know, it helps their brand reputation, helps them in the, in the stock market. So like, I totally, I totally get that aspect, but I think they're leaving money on the table from an individual property uh, basis because they're, they're again, just being kind of generic to more people versus actually having a local brand for that neighborhood or city or town that the property's in geared to a certain audience and really driving, um, driving that, um, you know, awareness is not the right word, but but driving that love of the property that that a certain demographic mm -hmm. would have. So I, I think there's some element that you could do both of it, though. Like you know, you could still do a you know you know whatever apartment name by a certain company and doing it in kind of that way that would work. Um, so again, I get both sides of that, but I, I do believe though, if you're not differentiating it on a on a community by community basis, then you're you're leaving money on the table um, on what you could possibly get by by really appealing specifically and clearly to a more of a more of a direct core audience for that property yeah and and even on the on the back end right like if if a property went to go uh you know if if they're shopping it around to new mm. you know capital partners or they're wanting to sell the property yeah. um i think one of the things that we talked about too is a potential downside is that it lacks the uniqueness to that property to that city like you were just referring to and it's it's kind of a part of this bigger portfolio but then does that make it sort of clunky from a purchasing standpoint? Like, oh, I'm buying this one piece of this bigger thing. And, and what does that mean for me and my, you know, and for, for my investments? Um, I thought that was a really good yeah. point. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, as you said earlier in the conversation, the, a good solid brand is an asset. And so if you're not, if you have a corporate brand, that's still the corporate brand of, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, manager or read or owner out there, when you're selling that, you, you're not, you know, you're not selling, when you're selling the property, you're not obviously selling that you're losing the value of that asset, or you don't have mm -hmm. the value of that asset to sell along with it. And I think, you know, again, I think, I think part of the, I don't know, I call it old school way of thinking or status quo way of thinking about it is that, you know, the brand's not that important, whatever, one to three main street, who cares about the brand? It's really just, you know, how we operate the building. And it's just about, you know, all the, the nuts and bolts, but I would argue that is shifting. I mean, you look at, you, you can even look at this in the bigger ecosystem of like, you know, you see brands that are valuable and really like Apple, you know, everyone uses that as an example, or even Tesla, although maybe that's going off the rails a little bit, but a little bit another story, <laughs> but you know, you, you, people have, have this connection to, you know, this, this differentiated uh, brands and, 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 and people that do marketing and have great messaging. And, and so there's an appeal to that. And there's a value, there is a value to that, even on a, a smaller scale, if it's a 50 or a hundred or 400 unit community, there's a value there. To take that thought process one step further. I think one of the, one of the main rebuttals and, and, um, I don't even know if it's really a rebuttal, but one of the, one of the main things that comes up in response to what we're talking about right now is, you know, Hey, but it works in hospitality. If you look at various hotel brands, you know, there's, there's in, in the, the OG is obviously the ACE hotel brand and, and it's different locations now around the world. And the question kind of comes up, well, why couldn't the ACE hotel of the property world exist and, and be done really, really well? And, um, what would that look like? Um, you said to me that you believe that you really have to root real estate in its neighborhood or in its city. And I loved that line of thinking, I would love if, if you could sort of expand upon that thought. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, it's it, this goes back to probably the beginning of the first person to ever own any sort of property, but re all real estate is local, right? I mean, it's just that's that. And, and I think to make a community, a property really sing, it needs to be it really does need to be rooted locally. People choose places to live, not because they they want to move 
you know, to a certain brand building, they move because it's a location and the neighborhood they want to live in, there's restaurants around there. And so, you know, the brand of that building is going to help you differentiate from the other buildings in the area where they want to live, not because they want to move to the next, like, oh, let's just move to, I don't know, Minneapolis, because there's a, you know, there's an ACE apartment building there, you know, that doesn't happen, right? People get relocated for jobs, they, they, they get relocated for, you know, they're getting married or divorced or, you know, got a new job or what or have kids or whatever it might be, there's this lifestyle decisions that come in. But ultimately, you know, people aren't traveling, like when you travel, it's different, right? So I'm going to go because I really like whatever Marriott's, I, I want to go stay to Marriott wherever I go, because it's easy, I have points. And that's simple and easy. And I know what I'm going to get. Great. But that's a decision that you're talking about for a week, stay, vacation, business trip, whatever. It's not about finding a home to live in, in a community, you know, in a, in a, in a property community, in a neighborhood community, in the place where you want to live, set down roots, have friends and family. And so I just don't think that there's the same appeal of having that brand because people might move from one of your branded buildings to another one somewhere mm -hmm. else. It, it's, it doesn't happen that, that way in real estate. Where, where you're living and where and where you live right yeah no and i and i love the sort of micro dynamic environment piece because it's true there there are these local factors like you said it's it could be literally um, like where i want to live but it could also be these other things about neighborhood um you know family dynamics are changing uh, my life situation is changing it's 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 a good point and, and again it's a tough one right because there's i think there's really good points on both sides yeah um, but I love I love talking about it because I think the conversation in general just matters, period. And I think we need to continue to have that conversation um, as as kind of brand uh, experts and marketing experts, but also as, you know, kind of real estate at large developers and, and owners, operators, just to see um, uh, and weigh the pros and cons of those those types of decisions. Uh, totally. I and, love and this. Look, yep. Go good. ahead. No, I, I said, and, and, and ultimately, look, I, I mean, for all these things, when I'm on one side of the uh, on this saying I, I believe in sort of having a, an independent you know building brand i think that's adds value but it's got to be a good brand too we're not just talking about you know the, if you just go through the motions and, and put together and i know there's always constraints and we deal with it on our end too as far as like what can you do within a certain budget constraint and how can we invest this money wisely and what what's how do we allocate this in any in any in any property or any project so i, I get all that um so you need to you know there's value if it's done right. If it's not done right in either circumstance, it's it's sort of a moot point. But sure. but, but that's yeah. that's the real that's the real trick. But I think at, on a whole, um, you know, differentiating a building by building is gonna is gonna deliver more value within the context of a of a specific market than than just a, a generic yeah. kind of a more generic corporate brand. Yeah. Well, as as we begin to wrap up here, I would like to stay on the in the marketing mindset, and I would mm -hmm. like to think about the future of multifamily, uh, which is a which is a big question. It's a difficult question to answer, um, but in your opinion, where do you feel like it's headed? Um, in in and I'm going to leave it kind of open like that. Where do you think the future of multifamily is headed? Drop us a few thoughts if you if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so. Look, I think what we're seeing in 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 a lot of industries, and I think we'll see in multifamily too. There's going to be a lot of different, uh, or sort of more options, more different options in terms of housing that people might might be able to get. So, you know, whether it's uh, shorter term lease options types of things, whether it's um, um, a, a different um, style of of, of building, uh, smaller buildings, boutique buildings, bigger buildings, things that have more. Um, you know, you see in some of these concepts now where you have more like dorm living almost, for lack of a better word, um, mm. and then more of the traditional, you know, larger apartment style uh, building. So I think I think you're going to see, again, to the point I was making earlier, I think people want to have feel feel like something is built specifically for them. And so it's not just about brand, it's about how you design and 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 and, and create a, a program in a building as well. And so I think we're going to see more and more of, of that, um, you know, different unique options uh, for properties. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing that's big that we'll see is, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, smart tech and uh, all the stuff to move forward. And yeah, of course, we're going to continue to see that stuff be layered in, whether it's access control, whether it's easy to, you know, you know, inf uh, communicate with your property manager, submit, you know, problems and get problems solved, things like that. There's a lot of, excuse mm. me, smart home tech and all that stuff. But I think we're also seeing a little bit of a, a snapback and return to the things that just make like, people's life simpler. So, for example, like an amenity space that's, you know, everyone's getting packages now. 
And so where the tech went is like, okay, we're going to build these, you know, automated package systems. All those are generally terrible, right? So, but what people, what people like is that, hey, why don't you just build me a package room where I could open my packages right there, recycle the boxes without having to take them upstairs and then back downstairs and make my life simpler that way. And that's the type of stuff we're going to see more and more of too, where just let's be a little bit more thoughtful about how we're designing these spaces so people can have an easier lifestyle, not necessarily the things that are as flashy uh, or mm -hmm. new or smart tech. And again, that stuff is going to come too. But but I think there's a little bit of a we got to find the right spot on that on that uh, on that spectrum. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe kind of hearkening back to my uh, my comment earlier in the podcast about how maybe in ten years we're just going to be laughing about the different packaging solutions that came through the <laughs> <laughs> that came through the multifamily industry at, at one time. But um, what about what about on the development? side like from the development perspective i know i know you feel strongly about the need for more housing just mm. you know at large for example and because you have so much involvement on the development side of the of mm -hmm. the coin too what do you see coming down the pipeline there what are what are a few thoughts that come to mind well i i think it's 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 a question as a society that we need to have some honest discussions about right i think you know as as there's economic growth as pop as there's population growth. We need to have the right amount of housing at all price points for us to not have severe supply constrictions like we have now. And there are many reasons for it, like whether it's the underlying zoning being way too restrictive, um, whether it's neighbors not wanting more buildings because there's a perception of traffic or schools being overrun or whatever we've got to have more regional discussions about what it means to develop responsibly and sustainably for communities to have um, sustainable, affordable housing for more people. Right now we've got, you know, prices that um, have accelerated uh, far too quickly. We've got affordability crisis uh, in a lot of areas, especially a lot of urban and you know highly desirable areas. And so we've got to think about how to, take a more regional approach right now. Most places is just like town to town, city to city, and even neighborhood to neighborhood approaches to how we're building and zoning. And there's not enough strategic thinking and uh, regional thinking for how we want to develop effectively. So that, and, and, and there's also this discussion of, uh, you, you know, this, this concept where, uh, you know, developers have been thought of as evil because they're building housing and it's just, they're just making money. Well, yeah, I mean, there's got to be an economic rational to, to build, but there's also got to be enough density to supply a, a percentage of a, a big enough, a percentage of affordable to make sense and a big enough a percentage of market to make sense. So there's a lot of factors that, that go into it. So I, th I think that discussion is starting to happen. We're seeing things in, in, in and around you know, Massachusetts that make sense and, and, and uh, with some new zoning in California, seeing really you know, an encouragement of building more housing statewide. So, and there's a lot of other regions doing similar, similar things. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I think that's, that's a discussion that has to happen. And I think it's also, um, there's starting to be more of recognition that this is a supply issue, um, that we have to increase supply. We have to build more, we have to increase more density to, to solve the problem. Whereas I think it was, you know, before it was just like, no, no more building because that just, that stuff doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a developer out of Portland recently, and, mm -hmm. and she was she was talking about how the city finally zoned, at least in, within the city limits sort of envelope, the the ability to create more density everywhere. So like a sort of a blanket decision to mm -hmm. um, give the option to, you know, build an ADU on your property, you know, do a, a, a four unit on your property. And um, even when I look around to, um, you know, Denver, Colorado Springs, I mean, the the, the footprint is so low and wide that what you're saying makes perfect sense. You know, like it, it, it just can't be a conversation around, um, developers wanting to make money any longer. I think it really does need to be the recognition that, um, supply is a major issue, especially like you said, at all levels of, of income. And that needs mm -hmm. to be kind of the, the core of the conversation. Yeah, w without a doubt. I mean, you know, essentially the, it, it the, it's, it's easy, not, I shouldn't say it's, that's not the right word, but it's, it's, you know, there are subsidies for those, you know, low income and subsidized housing in certain cases, there are, it's easier, you know, in theory to build high end housing because there are, you know, you can, you can offset the economic cost, but that middle is especially squeezed, but ultimately all of that is solved by adding and building, you know, more properties and areas that people want to live in. And, and, you know, the demand is not created by 
building a new a new property. So this is where that gentrification argument comes in. It's like, well, you can't develop here because that will just make more people want to live here and raise the prices. Well, well, no, it's actually the other way around. People want to live there anyway, and it, the prices are going up anyway. So we need to increase the supply of housing so that prices don't go up too fast, and we can still protect some of the existing housing stock and 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 keep a, keep the affordability in a neighborhood mm-hmm. that we want. You know that that um, you know diverse range of thoughts and incomes and personally and demographics and all that stuff that we think is really good within a, within the context of a neighborhood and historical uh, representation that I think everyone agrees that's good. It's just a matter of we've got to find a thoughtful way to add more density where people want to live. Yeah. Let me uh, let me hard pivot here because we're about to wrap up. But I, I know that we spent so much time on on marketing topics, which I love. So thank you for indulging me in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to really quickly uh, ask you just beyond work, beyond marketing, beyond uh, the the data and the economics of it all. Who who is Mike? Like, what do you do outside of, <laughs> of this crazy uh, yeah. this crazy real estate world? Well, um, yeah, no, I've got. Um, uh, I would I would call myself a family man. I you know I got a fantastic wife at home who does a lot of the legwork, taking care. We got two young kids, two toddlers, which is really really exciting. Uh, it's hard work, as I think you know as well with with a young one. So, but. I, I love my kids, man. Going home every day to see their smile. You know, my son, um, Nikki, last night I walked in the door and, you know, before I even shut the door, he's like, daddy, dad. And I, it's just so, <laughs> so, so cool. You know, it's like one of the coolest things. He's almost two and he's really developing that personality. It's really, uh, really awesome. So, I love you know, the family stuff is great. I try to spend as much time as possible with with the family. And my wife, Erin, does a fantastic job at, at home uh, helping with the kids and, and, and everything else and dealing with that. And then... Uh, I would say I also, I, I love to be on the water, man. So sailing um, and just oh, cool. boating in general, but sailing specifically, I love to sail as much as possible, uh, do some racing and do some um, uh, cruising, a lot of cruising with the family. The kids love the boat. So that's awesome. And we just love to get on the water as a family as much as possible as well. So that's, that's great stuff that I love to do. How about a, a book that you would recommend uh, the listeners to, to pick up, uh, what, yeah. what book would that be and, and, and why? So it's not a real estate book at all, but it's, uh, uh, I've been recommending this book highly to a lot of people this year since it came out. It's called when they win, you win by Russ Laraway. And it's a book it's, essentially, it's one of the clearest and simplest ways to think about people management, like for managers of people in a company than, than, than any I've ever come across. It's a really good book. It's clear, it's concise, it's simple. And I've, uh, I've, I've now instituted it as required reading for any, any manager in my, in my company. So it's a, it's a fantastic nice. book. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been a blast. Uh, there's only one more thing to do and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Um, tell the world what you're, what you're up to <laughs> and where they can, where they can find you online and, and get in touch. Yeah. So the best way for me, I like LinkedIn. So, um, you can find me there. I, I post somewhat fairly regularly do a lot of commenting whenever i see you chris put some good stuff out there i try to try to poke at you a little bit hopefully in in a kudos kind of way but (laughs) sometimes for a debate kind of way hopefully uh so linkedin is the best way to find me you know you can find us at uh, charlesgaterealty.com as well to see our services and 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 package but those are those are probably the two best ways we're also um actually gonna be rolling out our very own podcast soon too so excited to roll that out it's gonna be called empowered returns coming out um, next month. So in, uh, well, in February, so I'm not sure when this is going to go live, but in awesome. February and uh, we're excited about, about getting that, uh, up and live as well. Cool. Well, Mike, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for joining me and, uh, we'll have to talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. This was fantastic. <laughs>